I V M. Did you know that the British and the French went to the permanent court of arbitration to discuss Veer Savarkar? Did you know about the man who tried to fight colonialism by setting up his own shipping operations in Tuticorin? Do you know how the Queen of Lakshadweep tried to set tariffs on the island so that profit could go to Malabar kingdoms? Welcome to States of Anarchy, a podcast on global affairs and foreign policy. I'm your host Hamsini Hariharan. Once in a while we talk about histories on this podcast because your past informs your present. You can't make sense of the world unless you know your history. People's cultures and historical experiences shape nations and politics. So today we're searching for strains of historical experiences with India. My guest for today's show is Manu Pillai. Manu recently wrote a book called The Courtesan, the Mahatma and the Italian Brahmin. And when I read it, I saw all these themes from international relations jumping out at me. How do we look at questions of power and legitimacy, communal relations and colonialism, the foreign and the domestic through Indian history? That's what we are going to be talking about on this episode of States of Anarchy. But before we begin, let's take a short break. Hello everybody, welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. One more reminder, we are still hiring. We're looking for producers, content creators, audio engineers, developers and basically all kinds of people. Go onto our careers page ivmpodcast.com/careers and apply. Please send us your resume and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Also wanted to make a note to you all that hey, if you are listening to us and you hear something you like, take a screenshot of what you're doing, send it to us on social media, tag us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or wherever and we'll repost you on our own page. This week your favorite fitness podcaster Urmi Kothari is back with season 2 of the Kinetic Living podcast. Urmi is doing two bite-sized episodes every week, the Bata Tuesdays which will be a 4-minute workout and a second called Thriving Thursdays where Urmi will share motivating personal experiences of challenges she's faced. On Cyrus says actor and improviser Mukul Chadda talks to Cyrus about his central role in the Indian adaptation of The Office, the process of adapting the scripts and how he went from being a research analyst in New York to an actor and improviser in Mumbai. On the first episode of Tech Careers in the New presented by Accenture, Sheila Ditya is in conversation with Sanjeev Narsipur. He's the managing director and blockchain lead at Accenture Technology Services, and they talk about blockchain as real-world practical applications and what it takes to have a career in this space. On IVM Likes, IVM staffers delve deeper into the universe of independent and parallel cinema. On the Habit Coach, Ashton talks about never missing Mondays. He also talks about maintaining the momentum and owning that habit. On ATKT Talent, Ted Feeman and Krupa are joined by Sai, a rapper, and Kala, a music producer and rapper. They talk about their ATKT journey, the first songs they composed and produced together, and collaborations with other rappers. On Not Just Dance, Parsan talks to Roxanne Bambot and Maruk Mogrelia about immersive Parsi food experiences like Parsi food walks and home dining. On What a Player, Siddharth Mikhail and Akash review the previous week of the ongoing ICC Cricket World Cup, preview the upcoming week along with some unusual predictions and give out their What a Player of the Week. On the Pragati podcast, Pranay Kothasthane returns to help us understand how fiscal federalism works in India. And with that, let's continue on with your show. Hi Manu, welcome to States of Anarchy. I'm very happy to have you here. And thank you for having me here. I look forward to this conversation. Are you like Sharma ji ka beta? Like uh, you know that cousin who we all have who were told to look up to and be like why can't you be that person? I, I have a feeling it? recently you've become that person, you know. You're writing this is your third book that you've written, The Courtesan, the Mahatma and the Italian Brahmin is your third book. 
It is my third book, but I also sense that by saying this, you're trying to plant me in some sort of much older generation than I actually am. So I'm not Sharma Ji's beta who's older than you. I'm just whatever, your neighboring, I don't know, same age person or whatever. Yeah, same age overachiever. That was my point. No, 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 not an overachiever. As I was telling you earlier, before we started recording, it's all about time management. Okay, now I see why you say I, I sound bad, but you know, I sound pretty old now. But yes, that is just how it works. So you do a recurring column for the Mint every I do. week. It's right? been about over two and a half years now. Right. And so those are the essays that form the crux of your book? Not all. A number of the essays are uh, the original versions of the Mint column. So the way it works is that because it's history, you're always, you can never be too careful. I mean, there's mm. always so much nuance, there's always so much detail that, you know, trying to cram everything into 1000 words wasn't proving to be easy. Mm. So what I did was the opposite. I would write long versions of the essays. Sometimes they're as long as 4,000, 5,000 words and then trim it down to my 1000 word column, which gave me more control over the way I was uh, articulating my arguments and so on. Even then, there are times when you think, you know, damn it, I should have got this other detail in because it changes the very argument you're making, even though it's subtle. Mm -hmm. But there's no space. You know, sometimes it comes down to squabbles over five words, 10 words, 30 words, things like that, because it's a print publication. Mm -hmm. There's only so much space allocated. So I had these longer versions which were put away. And then when publishers started asking for the columns themselves, I said, why the column when I've got this mm -hmm. longer, let's say, the more real thing? you know, filed away that that's, you know, waiting to find a home somewhere. Mm. So that's how this book came about. And some of the other essays haven't been uh, carried anywhere. For example, the afterword is a very long essay, mm. which uh, was originally written for a Malayalam publication. So I thought okay. I should keep the, the this version here. Uh, some other ones, you know, at various times in the last three and a half years, these were written for various reasons. And, you know, when I was classifying the book into before the Raj, during the Raj, and then the afterword, mm. it made sense to just put these in and the idea is to have very many stories 61 stories altogether hmm. illustrated beautifully with 65 illustrations by Priya Kurian yeah I saw that the, the, one of the really nice things about the book was the illustrations that just yeah. beautifully done she brings it alive really because there's uh, you know at first when they said illustrations I said great not because I had any mm. uh, great notion of what the illustration would do but once Priya started sending in her work, I kept sitting up and thinking, my God, this is really, really beautiful work. And there's this time where, you know, when the book first arrived and I was touching the pages, I genuinely thought the pencil dust would stick to my fingers because that texture, the feeling, yeah, the it's all... the idea that it's done on charcoal. It is, paper, yeah. Right? yeah so she's, she's really done a remarkable job and she's really, I think, contributed a great deal to the essays themselves. Mm -hmm. So while you're reading, uh, you know, I wouldn't say heavy stuff, but, you know, you're reading on history, you're reading on fairly important stuff mm. and balancing it out with an aesthetic uh, appeal is is these wonderful illustrations which uh, I think yeah they add a lot to the quality of the book no I completely agree and even the idea that it's in two covers yeah. uh, is really nice that was frankly unusual we couldn't make up our mind about uh, which cover we liked more mm. so my publisher said why don't we just do, do two covers mm. and I said well that's unorthodox we wanted to confuse people or whatever her argument however was that it'll actually become, become a conversation topic which it has and of course the, the little sinister agenda is to persuade people to pick up two copies of the book <laughs> one in each color mm. rather than simply one copy of the mm. book yeah, but I think it's unorthodox in a nice way in the sense that a lot of the themes that you touch on the book are also not usual uh, for the most part. So I think it, it complements it well. Yeah. You know, history comes in multiple shades and multiple colors. Mm. And especially, as I say, I think in the, in the introduction, it's a time when everything is uh, is projected in terms of black and white. Mm. And one of the things you have to realize is that it isn't black and white. The only thing that's black and white in the book is the illustrations. Mm. Everything else is all about layers and colors and complexity. 
and trying to sort of put it all out there in an engaging fashion but also making this very serious point that indian history is not these linear narratives that you're fed on a daily basis nor is it this rubbish that comes up on twitter where it's screenshots from various books on google books and people pretend that this is true history or real history or whatever it's it's a much more complicated art and craft all right so getting into the book i was reading it with you know the background of like politics and international relations which is what i specialize in and i found a lot of interesting themes there and the first thing that i saw there was just sort of this when you finish reading the book you get this richness that is the history of india and you also get an understanding that this is a multicultural plural society that's constantly in touch with other people i think in the chapter about shivaji we're talking about how malikambar first started in africa then there was something about i think the nizam shah had wives of persian extraction and african wives yeah and th- that was just very interesting for me i mean we're sitting a few miles away from ahmednagar which is now a tier 2 town in in the country mm-hmm. you know, it's not a, a major city or whatever but this is a place where there were independent sultans who had turned it into one of uh, you know south asia's great cities for a long time and to think that two of them had had black begums you know this is not something indian kids are taught to think that in ahmednagar there were black begums but they were there they were there and they were very powerful and they belonged to a faction that was of great influence and as you were alluding to earlier shivaji's grandfather maluji was not only a close associate of the nizam shah but also of malikambar who was african I mean, even the mix of religions, the Nizam Shahs, for example, they're originally Brahmins who convert to Islam, mm. take brides who are Persian or African, mm. and of course, occasionally even Maharashtrian women. Malikambar in their court was actually running the show after the Mughals come, and he's the one defending the state's interests. And they're mixing up Persian elements with local Hindu elements and so on. So you go to uh, the place where Shivaji's grandfather and all are buried, uh, you know, and the controversial scholar James Lane mm. thought that the samadhis over there of Shivaji's family, they're actually tombs. but they're not tombs there's no bodies buried inside mm. it's just that the structures are so islamicate in appearance that you would think these are muslim tombs but they're not and that's the kind of architecture that's the kind of art that's the kind of uh, culture that these these kingdoms were projecting mm. because their identities didn't hinge on any one this is my bigger argument i think in the book that culture this whole notion that there is a pristine pure culture that we're supposed to find and resurrect it doesn't mm. exist no culture has ever been pure no culture has ever been pristine cultures have always been influenced by other things just as we say the hindus gave the zero to the world hindus also took other things from other parts of the world cultures are nourished like that and these kingdoms are all examples merely of that yeah and i think your uh, sort of cultural identity doesn't hinge on one dimension and i think that comes across in the book really well just because you know you're christian doesn't mean you give up your festivals or your caste marks or things like that right so you i don't know the indian system is very resilient at sort of molding different cultures together yeah and it tends to absorb incorporate and fit things into an existing I mean it's a very flexible system right mm-hmm. so what happens is even if an outsider comes you usually find a way to subjugate it even I and mean, this is what happens to all these reform movements as well the lingayats begin as an anti caste anti brahminical uh, you know uh, ideology sort of movement but end up being also incorporated into that order as yet another caste basically for the longest time because that's just how the system works it's very clever that way you know where it comes across a pagan goddess and it wants to absorb that local population and connect them to a brahmanical mainstream well you turn that goddess into an avatar of parvati mm-hmm. it's a little bit like that madhura meenakshi essay in the book mm-hmm. where it's a androgynous triple breasted goddess 
who then you know finally they there's a little chapter at the end where she I mean in her story mm. where she ends up going to Kailash as this androgynous goddess and mm. meets Shiva turns into a regular woman uh, remembers that she's Parvati's avatar and you know it, it very quickly translates a local goddess of that region mm. into a member of the sanskritic pantheon and it's i'm not saying this is good or bad it's just fascinating that this is how it was done and there are you know dilip menon has this thing in, in north malabar where he talks about how tribals absorbed a lot of brahminical customs while the brahmins absorbed a lot of tribal customs mm. because you know that's just how it was people negotiated these things and came to uh, various understandings in bangalore i recently met a photographer called claire ani mm. and she's showing me photographs of this festival in kurk it's called kunde which basically means bum mm. and it's a it's a thing where tribal men essentially show up in drag there's no other way for word for it okay. they show up in drag at this temple where they're allowed to abuse the deity or whatever it's that one day where they're allowed mm. to come and do this what may to us seem outlandish but mm. it is the echo of some sort of historical understanding between the tribes that live there and this potentially brahminical goddess who came in at some point a god or goddess that came mm. in at some point and some sort of understanding that these communities reached with the deities with the priests or whatever so they still have that one day where they're allowed to come and abuse the deity in drag and you know one has to study these kind of things mm. to really understand the way indian society worked how it made foreigners insiders you know what was foreign may change in a matter of generations mm. you find this even with the vedas for example right so in the rigveda there's this thing where it says smash the idolaters and you know break the idols and things kill the phallus worshipers and things mm. like that but by the time you come to the atharva veda it's all about worshiping the phallus and yeah. things mm. like that because societies move on that's just mm. how it is so how do you um, sort of reconcile with the nostalgia that comes when we speak about these you know multicultural plural resilient societies that are very different morally socially from the one that we have today i think we look at it from the wrong angle what mm. we do and this is perhaps a human failing we try to look at everything through our current lens and filters so you know we have certain anxieties so we try and find various justifications for it from the past we have some sort of uh, you know something we are looking for and we try and get the past to address that for us in the in the process we don't understand the past on its own terms we don't understand the past in its own context what we end up doing is trying to understand the past on our terms which is not fair i mean the past it was a different country it was a different set of people human impulses and motivations may remain the same but context change okay on a related note when i was reading the book what struck me was how do you deal with history with the absence of you know the modern state system because um even the way people look people often apply the lenses that they have today to past uh, to the past right so if they say okay so there was this tamil king they imagine this sort of country with a sovereign and borders that has the same i don't know international values that we ascribe to today's system so how do you look at history without the modern state systems sort of overhang? yeah this is actually a very interesting question because there weren't these borders there weren't walls there weren't fixed boundary lines beyond which it was my kingdom and your kingdom mm. geography did play some role in that sense for example often kingdoms ended at certain rivers or certain hills and that sort of thing but in the plains it wasn't like that so you know even uh, shivaji's son rajaram for example flees to jinji and he lives there deep in tamil nadu mm. for you know nearly a decade or so 
and while he's there you know the maratha state so to speak survives but it's a very interesting time because the moguls are wooing the marathas who are actually in maharashtra the king is sitting in tamil country and trying to make sure that these people you know continue to stay loyal and pay him obeisances and and homage and things like that and some of it is through song it's creating the legend of shivaji you know putting out mm-hmm. songs saying this is our mission this is our common goal and so on because there are no boundaries mm-hmm. today you have a, a nobleman in your court he's part of your things so all the territory he controls is part of your uh, zone of influence tomorrow he switches over after long negotiations with the moguls to them suddenly that becomes part of their zone of influence so these zones are constantly changing it's a series it's ruled through concentric circles mm-hmm. so even when the emperor in delhi sits on top it's not like he controls all the territory uh, that that's part of the mughal empire under him there'll be nobles those nobles will then have their territories and their jagirs then there'll be the rajputs for example in rajputana he's never set foot in in their territories not one of his soldiers has gone there mm-hmm. that's their zone of influence they happen to pay allegiance to the mughal emperor therefore it's part of the empire sort of like vassal states sort of like vassal states and this and this happens at every level it comes all the way down to even village level and sometimes you find that in the deccan you know once the mughals came and it's mm. the deccan sultanates versus them it's often these border village headmen uh, studies have shown which you know, they could easily switch one one year they pay land revenue to one master the next year they pay to some other master and mm. it's just that's just the way it is uh, the later marathas this concept of chauth for example mm. you know they didn't actually govern those territories it was you know them extracting revenue from there mm. technically those people belong to another king state so the the overlaps are bewildering it's very difficult to make sense of uh, you know what uh these these territories were they weren't proper modern states they were not uh, set in stone their boundaries were not set in stone these were fluid entities mm. and the elite had lots of movement that was possible from one one court to the other mm. one of the examples i given in my second book rebel sultans is that big battle of talikota in 1565 mm. you know this is usually projected as this hindu empire of vijayanagar being destroyed by this group of muslim sultans but the de facto emperor vijayanagar who was leading the charge there he began his career in the court of the qutub shah in golconda he was an employee there then he came to vijayanagar married the emperor's daughter that's how he ended up on the vijayanagar side the adil shah of bijapur was on the enemy side of vijayanagar was an adopted son of the raya of vijayanagar i mean the the de facto mm. man ramaraya uh the the nizam shah was an old enemy the qutub shah when he was a young man and living his brother wanted to kill him so he went into exile not into one of the muslim states but into vijayanagar so he had spent 7 years of his life living in vijayanagar he spoke telugu like the vijayanagar royal family he patronized the mahabharat and poetry on the mahabharat like the vijayanagar royal family he married a telugu woman uh you know pretty much in the same circles as the vijayanagar family took their brides which basically meant there was a huge amount of overlap between these mm. people there were 6000 marathas at the battle of talikota but they were fighting for the sultans there was a celebrated muslim general called ainul mulk gilani mm. who appears only in one record uh, it, it's an inscription where he's do- ensuring that land is donated to 80 brahmins he was fighting for the vijayanagar emperor so the overlaps are all over the place mm. there were no fixed divisions as we like to see them now we live in a world where the british came in the 19th century these are foreign rulers right so mm-hmm. they come in and they say to rule this country we must have order order means what start classifying everything mm-hmm. start finalizing boundaries this you belong in this box i belong in this box this whole process of order starts from them and john wilson's written this book called india conquered mm-hmm. where he talks about this how earlier power was you know kings had to go out show themselves to their subjects mm-hmm. justice was often given on the spot it was on the basis of local customs and so on now the british come and they introduce these common rules that are supposed to apply across territories it's government by paper they create a bureaucracy where it completely eschews any face to face contact with the people instead paper comes in and you try to 
create order where there is no order you try to create order through paper through these rules and manuals and so on that doesn't actually reflect the the reality on the ground i completely agree i mean if you look at india's borders for example today uh the people who drew most of india's borders had never been to these places and that's just a very telling account of sort of britain's legacy and the way they instituted the bureaucracy here uh and borders are often accidents of history you know at certain mm. times i i mean i remember being fascinated when i first learned how the northeastern states could mm. easily have been allotted to burma when burma yeah. was separated from the from the indian empire exactly it was merely a bureaucratic decision not to do it which meant that in 1947 those may not even have been part of india and we were not have you know had any concerns with that part so a lot of it is accidents of of history that's yeah i mean and how do you deal with the fallout of accidents of history i mean uh for example i was thinking about your chapter where, where you were talking about what what would india be if britain had not colonized it and uh, it's a very interesting counterfactual uh, one that a lot of people go down this road when they say oh india had 25% of the world's gdp we would still have 25% of the world's no, I gdp i doubt it i mean the these calculations exist and it's wonderful to be enamored of them and they do have a certain value in yeah. terms of understanding colonialism they have a certain value but we have to realize that the, there was no common language to be with mm. the people who lived in the subcontinent didn't see themselves as part of one country they did have a sense that they were part of one cultural zone and this takes me to dynaic sacred geographies for example mm. where you know there is something that connects rameshwaram to akashi to badrinath mm. to you know all these pilgrim sites as it were yeah, yeah. there is some anywhere you go i mean there's telugu there's kannada there's tamil there's malayalam in the south but any corner of the south you go you will always find one brahmin who's no sanskrit and worships and venerates the same text which yeah. is the vedas and the whole mm-hmm. vedic corpus now it doesn't mean though that even the brahmins are some sort of one uni- united group in banaras alone there were over 100 varieties of brahmins mm-hmm. each competing with each other to claim which one is superior uh, and the other thing is you know look at kerala and tamil nadu crossover from the western ghats into kerala the nambudri woman wears only white to her mm-hmm. to her you know wedding day cross onto this side to tamil nadu and you meant white is the color of widowhood you never wear white to your wedding uh, you know the kudumi or the tuft of hair for the nambudri it's on the front of the head for the tamil brahmin it's at the back of the head mm. you know the the way they recite their their vedas the way they live all of this is very different and all that separates these two groups of brahmins is one set of hills mm. but they're not the same set either yet the fact that they had something common across the country mm. meant that there was some civilizational some tenuous thread of civilizational unity i suppose mm. that existed throughout the subcontinent but politically no you know there's there's no way it would have uh, at least not in the current contours that we have it it's very likely uh, north india would have been under a titular mughal em- emperor which was yeah. actually controlled by the marathas mm. and their official language would have been persian mm. if uh, tipu had had his way then the south may have been you know part of one large empire under him with a lot of french influence because his allies were the french not the english yeah and you know it would have been interesting to see a french speaking peninsula or where you know in the south there was one kind of lifestyle and all of that in the north you have a persian speaking mm. state controlled by the marathas and including places like bengal it you know the the possibilities are quite fascinating and they are uh, this is uh, what at one point uh, some friends and uh, i had nicknamed the united states of dravid and adam <laughs> uh, because it is interesting to see how that plays out what i found fascinating about it was that power and legitimacy are still constant themes through a lot of indian histories in that sense right uh, i mean people talk a lot about chanakya and how he was this great machiavellian contemporary who schemed and planned what i found interesting on, in your book was uh, the shivabharata and how sort of shivaji proclaimed himself emperor he 
sort of changed the way people looked at the Muslims' regional rule. That was very interesting. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, you know, I don't believe in the extreme leftist view, perhaps, for example, that, you know, everything was syncretic and wonderful mm. before the British came. Nor do I subscribe to the ultra-right-wing view that it was all about communal hatred. You have to look at it again with layers. Now, if you look look at the mass level, it was pretty syncretic. Mm. Because, you know, people's lives are localized. When a saint comes, they don't go and check, are you a, a Muslim saint or a Hindu saint? Any saint is a divine figure, which is why you have, you know, the, there's this tomb of a sultan, a Bahmani sultan, where the uh, ceremonies on his birth anniversary are done by the Lingayats who come and smash a coconut and do all the Hindu rituals, essentially, uh, in this Muslim tomb. Mm. Shivaji's father is called Shahaji, his uncle is called Sharifji. And these two sons were named after a Sufi guru, as it were, uh, by naming their sons after this Muslim. You know, so there's in Shivaji's own family, you, you see that kind of syncretism. But the thing is that once you go up levels of power, once it mm. comes to the elites who are actually governing politics, who are actually discussing and for whom statecraft matters and it's about power, mm. there you find that the vocabulary of religion becomes more pronounced because this is a time when there's no nationalism. Your mm. political ideas are expressed through religious ideas. Mm. So you will always construct your self-image in a way that is different from your rival. So if your rival happens to be, so I'll give you the example of Vijayanagar. Now mm. the kings of Vijayanagar called themselves Hinduraya Suratrana. It's an interesting title, which means sultans among Hindu kings. Hmm. This is the first instance of an of an Indian king accepting the word sultan and apply uh, Hindu and applying it to himself. Hmm. Usually, Hindus applied by foreigners for anybody who lived in India. Yeah. Here, he's clearly saying that the the Muslim rulers are well Islamic, and hmm. he is a Hindu. Hmm. This thing, but he's also at the same time appropriating the title of sultan. He wants to be a sultan because now hmm. suddenly being a sultan is a cool thing. So he's like, "You're Muslim sultans. I'm a Hindu sultan." Hmm. So that very title gives you a lot uh, about how they projected their self-image. They, Vijayanagar did have a self-image that was Sanskritic in nature, mm. that was that did sort of elevate Hindu concepts over anything else. Mm. Just like the Islamic states had, uh, you know, they elevated Islamic concepts mm. over anything else. But when it came to actually negotiating politics on the ground, mm. then as now, the official rhetoric was not what governed things. Mm. It's a little bit like today's manifestos. You know, officially a certain party will say that beef is not permitted. Mm. But, you know, their own party representatives in some states where beef is widely eaten will say, no, 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 don't worry. We will, you know, make sure beef is subsidized. You can eat all the beef you want and things like that. Because on the ground, you have to deal with a different kind of reality. But when you're articulating your self-image, you will always sort of exaggerate things in a certain mm. way. And this is what you see with, uh, I mean, so Krishna Devaraya of Vijayanagar, you know, he's the head of this very orthodox Hindu court or whatever. But that doesn't preclude foreign influences from coming in. Hmm. You know, you go to Tirupati where his famous bronze uh, exists in the temple and he's wearing a Turkish hat. Because that was, because if you look at sculptures in Vijayanagar in Hampi as well, hmm. you'll see them influenced by a lot of Persian elements. In the Vitala temple in Hampi, there's an Arab, Arabic warrior on a horse who's been sort of enshrined forever in a temple column. You have, you have, uh, you know, there's, there are sculptures of, of Arabs and Muslims dancing for the Vijayanagar king, and so on. There's similarly on the on the Maratha side. Mm. Now, the chief minister of uh, Maharashtra today is Devendra Fadnavis. Fadnavis is a Persian word. Mm. You know, Peshwas in Pune were Orthodox Brahmin rulers, but Peshwa, their title is a Persian word. Mm. So although their self-image was, was strong and it could be fairly strongly Hindu, so Shivaji openly says he wants a Hinda Viswaraj and so on. Mm. It doesn't mean it's close to other ideas. It doesn't mean it's close to other uh, concepts or whatever. It's merely the way they articulate their sense of their worldview, their legitimacy and their power. Mm. And everybody seeking legitimacy some way or the other, right? So for the Hindu rulers, they will seek it in old Brahminical texts, which are excellent for this kind of thing because yeah, it's full yeah. of material that you can use for these purposes. With the Muslims, they will do it in another way. They'll claim, uh, you know, there are these Farishta's accounts, for example, he talks about how a certain sultan 
used to have a great feast every day after he killed 20,000 infidels or whatever. Hmm. Now, basic world population trends from the time show that if 20,000 people were being killed on a daily basis, yeah. uh, Vijayanagar would have collapsed at that time, at that battle. But Vijayanagar went, did not collapse. It went on to achieve great heights. Hmm. It meant there was no such decimation. He was writing in Arabic and Persian to impress people in the Islamic world that he was such a great slaughterer of infidels. He wasn't actually doing that on the ground. On the ground, he had Brahmin ministers and Maratha nobles and things like that because that's the only way he can run his state. So at elite levels, there is self-image constructed often with a religious vocabulary and drawn from religious ideas. But trickles down to the masses. There's no sense of communal identity. Uh, there's no sense of statehood. You know, people have very localized lives. Mm. That's true. I completely agree with you. And even it goes on to show that political rhetoric in that sense hasn't changed whether in medieval India or in the present day. Uh, and what I was also thinking about was uh, in several of your accounts, particularly about the Deccan, the sultans, some of the Peshwas, they're referred to as Turks, right? So is this because they have links to Persia or, or is that just nomenclature? Turushka is just a nomenclature. I mean, it's, it's like Yavana. Yavana is originally Ionian or Greeks. That's hmm. the word that it's used for. But then you find at a later time, uh, Krishna Yavanas, which is a refer reference to Africans. Uh, you know, similarly, you know, as you come further down, these words keep recurring. So uh, uh, the, I think the Persians were also called something par paraskas or something like that. Mm -hmm. I, have to, I have to remember what they what they were called. Turuska, however, comes from the fact that the early Turks who came to North India, mm -hmm. they were Turks. The early Muslims who came were Turks. Mm -hmm. So even there, it wasn't a religious thing. They didn't say Muslims. They said mm -hmm. Turks. It was a racial slash regional uh, title that stuck rather than a religious one. Of course, they ref they were referring to Muslims, but the mm -hmm. words used were not. So you sure. look at Sanskritic texts, for example. The mm -hmm. You know, the, these kings are often fitted into existing worldviews. So there are there are inscriptions where, uh, say, Bukka says that Bukka of Vijayanagar, hmm. the second emperor says he's going to go out and conquer all these enemy king kingdoms. The Muslim kingdoms appear in a sequence of names that features a lot of other Hindus. Hmm. The Muslim is not marked out for any pronounced hostility hmm. as some sort of special enemy. He's just one of many enemies who also exists on your geopolitical horizon. And that is what is interesting, which is that they knew there was a difference. Mm. But that religious difference didn't make them any, you know, particularly hateful enemies or anything. Because it was a time when everybody was competing for this. It was a time when violence was an everyday affair. It mm. wasn't like any of these kings were particularly subtle or gentle in the way they conquered states. Violence and rape and looting, these things were mm. perfectly uh, part of the, you know, the regular process of being kings and conquerors. Mm. Does that change when you move a little bit towards the coast? Because there's the idea that, you know, you have sort of one side of Islam that was bought through Persia from land. And then you have, uh, you know, as the Mapilas, for example, in Kerala. So yeah. the Islam that flourished by trade who adopted a lot of local This patterns. is, you know, part of the larger argument I make, which is that there is so much of an obsession with North India in the way Indian history is taught. So yeah. when you say Indian history, mm -hmm. you're essentially looking at it from a northern perspective. That's why, as you said, you know, the Islam didn't come when the first swords were raised in the Sindh. It came via very peaceful embassies of commerce to Kerala first. Mm -hmm. If legend is to be believed, in the very lifetime of the Prophet, the first mosque was built in Kerala. And even if that legend isn't true, two centuries later, by the ninth century, you find that royal grants given by a Hindu king, there are Arabic signatures of Muslim witnesses on it, which meant if they were witnessing royal grants, they were already pretty important members of society by the 9th century, if not the Prophet's own lifetime. Look at the oldest political legend in Kerala. It's about this legendary king called Cheraman Perumal, yeah. who witnesses the splitting of the moon by the Prophet mm -hmm. and decides he wants to sail to Mecca. 
and uh, he divides his kingdom among all his nephews and relatives and these families are the ones who ruled into the modern age in Kerala mm-hmm. all of them claiming legitimacy as nephews and descendants of this particular king but even in that founding political legend of Kerala that main core political legend of Kerala there is a muslim there is witnessing the prophet splitting the moon which meant that as a trading peninsular society mm-hmm. having this sort of external influence coming into your society wasn't such an unusual thing it was very much part of the thing when the aitya mala that that contains all the legends of kerala features an ambudri brahmin and his encounters with a chinese merchant mm-hmm. you know and how the chinese merchant leaves his treasure at his place and how he's like impressed that this man didn't steal it and things like that so you know, that kind of you know the story is all around us it's it's simply a matter of opening our eyes and realizing that these anything that simplifies things too much mm-hmm. is suspect because it is a society with so many layers so many colors so much complexity and so much happening i mean look the sheer size of the subcontinent is such that something that may be true for the south or one sliver of the coast in kerala is not true for karnataka mm-hmm. it's not true for andhra pradesh it's certainly not true for kashmir because there's so much diversity within the subcontinent of course and i think uh, the main culprit of this is sort of our 10 standard history textbooks Horrible. right yeah. <laughs> they that just reduce everything to to lines with three names of kings that you have to remember for five mark answers and yeah the the textbooks you know I'll, I'll blame them for another reason which is that they make it look like indian history was all leading up to this moment of national struggle mm. and then we become independent and wah like you know it's this glory after that mm. whereas no even that had you know it's not like the you know i recently wrote about how this notion that you know they were leading a romantic freedom struggle and pushed the british out and finally you know came to power and sort of gently naturally sort of uh, moved into a constitutional this thing and had these ideas and came up with the republic and all of that it's not so straightforward the congress was ruling eight provinces in british india in the late 1930s mm. they stood for elections they formed governments in these places and as early as the late 90s you find that once they were in power they had to balance competing claims you know between industrialists and labor they had to balance competing claims between different regions they were already facing problems of corruption Mm. So you find that you know they had already got their flavor of of power. So one of the reasons we could seamlessly move from the British state to a well-organized state in independent India, then we could come up with the constitution and republicanism and the parliament and all of that, is because they had got some experience running provinces, running local governments, being part of local bodies within the British system for a very long time. It's a little bit like we don't talk about the contribution of the Indian Army during the two world wars. Mm. They were some of the most phenomenal contributions in World War history. Obviously, the British aren't going to talk about it. We should have been talking about it, but because nationalism sort of over dominates everything else you've completely forgotten that these people made a phenomenal contribution to a world event you know that's true i mean i think all i remember of sort of school history that talks about the world wars is just uh, gandhi said that we would participate in the world war and then there's something about the round table conferences yeah. <laughs> and it ends there right yeah forget <laughs> that's it no numbers no figures nothing about how we were active participants in that mm-hmm. because you know they all objected to that and uh, there was that quit india movement they mm-hmm. called and the focus was on quit india but yes while quit india was happening there were a large number of indians who were fighting against fascism in other parts of the world and that i think is part of india's heritage and history because nationalism is what we've decided is the main thing that has to be disseminated to all our kids in their textbooks mm. you never learn these actually other you know equally rich parts of india's history at this point let's take a break india's a massive subcontinent home to truly stunning diversity behind the veils of smoke that obscure our thriving cities our history is still alive glimmering like sequins waiting to be discovered and if you like me 
are straining to hear the echoes of our past, this podcast is for you. I'm Anirudh Kanisetti, a history and geopolitics researcher, and I host Echoes of India, a history podcast about India, by Indians and for Indians. In Echoes, we journey through the complex histories of South Asia and what they can teach us about our globalized world. Tune in every Wednesday on ivmpodcast.com or your favorite podcast app. Welcome back after the break. You're listening to States of Anarchy and I'm Hamsani Hariharan. Yeah, the other thing that I was also thinking about was we had relations with Europe that went far beyond sort of 18th century, right? Uh, something that I wanted to ask you was, uh, I think uh, Dara Shuko you mentioned had a, a French physician yeah. called Francois Bernier. Bernier. And then you have, you know, the Begum of Ahmednagar and you see sort of these Portuguese chroniclers uh, talking about uh, Kunza Humayun. They describe her as a Devdasi yeah. <laughs> turned into a Begum. Which she absolutely was not. She was Persian. Mm-hmm. And in fact, see again, that also talks about elite mobility. So all these Persians coming to India, mm-hmm. they're all they're all seeking service at various courts. So Kunza's father comes to Ahmednagar, but you know, Akbar's regent, hmm. Behram Khan, is one of her uncles. He goes off to the Mughal court. So it's, you know, pretty much their enemy states. But, you know, it was possible for the same elites to move and serve different courts and still remain members of one family. But you're right, there was a lot of European presence as well. Uh, and not merely European, a lot of the artillery experts hmm. back in the, in the early modern times were Turkish or Georgian, you know, people from those parts of the world. And they would come and serve in the Deccan. Both parts of the country, really, because the south, because it's a peninsula, people come on ships. Mm. The north, through these Persian networks that connect them to Eastern Europe and mm. uh, Iraq and those parts, they have people coming in from there. But the point is, foreigners were always coming in. Adventurers were always seeking uh, careers in India. And the Indian kings had the wherewithal to give them places mm. of importance in their society. I mean, why are we talking only about Europeans, as you were saying earlier, the Africans? Mm. Thousands and thousands and thousands of them. I don't think most people realize that we probably all have fairly recent African blood. It's not merely the outer of Africa ancestors who came to India. But a lot of us probably have African blood that came from these men who came here without wives, married local women, mm. and their descendants very quickly dissolved into local society. You know, I, it's not part of the book, but there's this amazing story about the last king of Burma. Mm. You know, the, just as the Mughal emperors exiled and sent mm. on a bullock cart to, to Burma, the last Burmese king is put on a bullock cart, yeah. uh, taken to a port and shipped off to India and settled finally in Ratnagiri, mm. where, you know, you one of his daughters, they're all cocoon, they're not, they don't have friends, they're very very lonely. One of the daughters, the oldest daughter, the first princess, starts having an affair with the Maharashtrian watchman, a Mr. Mm. Savant. And, uh, you know, they, she has a love child with this man. And the daughter is raised, you know, and she goes on to marry a Marathi man as well, a bus driver called Pavar. Mm. And her kids live in Ratnagiri and they, you wouldn't be able to tell that they're actually, they have, they have blood from the last king of Burma. Two mm. generations wiped out that obvious, you know, physical appearance. Mm. But they do have blood from Burma. It's a little bit like that. So, you know, Malayalis have Arab blood. You know, the, the more, not just the Mapras. I'm pretty sure lots of other <laughs> yeah, Malayalis also have it. That's true. And then you, uh, I, I think across Tamil Nadu, you have a lot of trade that goes along with Southeast Asia all the way to China. I think There's that wonderful story of the Pallava emperor who was imported from Vietnam slash Cambodia, right? I do not know that. Oh, yeah, Nandi Varman II. Hmm. So, you know, I think in the 8th century, that's when they, the Pallava emperor dies. They discover that they don't have heirs in the family. So the Brahmins look into the family tree and they find that 
some three or four generations before a Pallava prince had sailed to Cambodia, Vietnam, or one of those countries, and married some princess there. Hmm. And so now the Brahmins get on a boat, sail sail all the way there. So so much for Kalapani. Yeah, they actually sail all the way there. Yeah, they sail all the way there. And they find, they persuade a 12-year-old descendant of that Pallava prince to come back with them. And this is a boy who which has who has very strong Southeast Asian features, mm-hmm. who's brought back to Kanchivaram and installed as Nandivarman II, the next mm-hmm. Pallava emperor. So it's a little funny where you say that, you know, some people say the Mughals were foreigners because they came from outside India originally. So they don't belong here. Does that mean all the subsequent Pallavas were also foreigners because one of them came from Southeast Asia? Mm-hmm. The thing is this foreigner insider thing, you know, as, as some, I think my ex-boss Shashi Tharoor used to say that everybody in this country is a minority. If you look at the actual diversity and acknowledge it, there is no majority in the country. Everyone is a minority. It's a little bit like that. You know, everybody has foreign blood in them. The question is to what extent and what doses. It's not a question of if, it's a question of what degree. Mm. That's a very uh, interesting statement. I I'd recall with Sunil Amrit uh, and he'd written about the Bay of Bengal and what he did was instead of centering geographies around the Indian subcontinent, he centered it around the Bay of Bengal as a geographical feature and you say, you know, you look at the Bay of Bengal as a network of siblings and wives and family uh, of traders and slaves all going from one place to the other and then you'll see uh, an incredible different geography. Uh, one that we have conveniently forgotten. Yeah, for because our boundaries are now this side of mm. the Bay of Bengal. So everything on that side is, you know, not uh, part of the story because mm. now it's all about what is Indian history. But mm. We realize that these little regions had their own histories. They had their own connections. As I said, mm. Kerala had more in common with Arabia than it had with North India. Mm. Delhi had more in common with Kabul than it had with Kerala. You know, that's just the fact of, that's just a fact of history. Now there are borders between these places. Now it so happens that Delhi and Kerala are part of one country, but that mm. doesn't actually mean that historically they had much of a, of a connection between each other. Mm. This is an aside, but then if you were sort of just presenting a view of Indian history, then how would you do it? Or would you do it? I'd be, I mean, I'd be very, one thing I definitely want to do, uh, merely as an experiment, if, even if it stays at that level, is that to do a history of India through the eyes of female protagonist. Mm. You know, think of a grand history of India, where your main characters are not men. It's the men who are the secondary characters and the marginal figures. And the women are the, the protagonists through whom you, you tell the story of India, mm. the sub- subcontinent as a whole. And it could include so many uh, figures. I know that there's a dearth of information when it comes to actual historical figures, where they appear, there's barely anything that survives. Kunza Humayun, as you may have read in the book, her mm. son so resented her influence. He not only destroyed records, he had her painted out of miniature paintings. Mm. You know, there are these big blobs in these Ambedkar miniature paintings and Kunza used to be there. And then he turned her into a big blob. So that is something I want to do, a history of India where the female receives that, that protagonist's position, which includes, you know, legends around goddesses, for example, because it tells you a lot about local society, it tells you about how societies evolved over there, religion evolved. So, you know, focus that bit on goddesses. Mythological women, there's an essay here on the two Shakuntalas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the original Mahabharata Shakuntala, who's much more forthright and, and confident, and then the Kalida Shakuntala, in that tri- who's much more shy and docile and all of that. In that whole transition, it tells you a lot about how societies mm-hmm. changed in that time. And then, of course, the actual historical uh, women. But otherwise, you know, to do a grand history of India, I'd always be a little hesitant. I'd, I'd rather focus on smaller regions and on smaller uh, neglected stories and things like that because they encapsulate something that can be said of the, of the rest of the subcontinent as well, which is that there is no one answer, there is no one formula, there is no one unifying principle. It is 
diversity is the only unifying principle and change is the only constant and exchange is the only other constant there's there's no other principle you can apply across the subcontinent in one you know blanket way you have my full vote if you ever want to do write the book with uh, <laughs> women protagonists uh, as the face of indian history uh, something that you brought up because you'd mentioned shakuntala is that i was also looking at you know the rage that shakuntala created in europe uh, the idea that gothe was really influenced by it and they staged uh, the play that was written by william jones mm-hmm. he translates kalidas and writes shakuntala or the fatal ring and that's mm-hmm. staged in europe and this is a time where you know devdasis from from southern india are sailing to europe and performing before the french king and then in london and things like that and you know there is still some degree of respect for mm-hmm. india to be fair even that fairly generous generation of englishmen who were you know in love with indian culture or whatever they didn't like what they saw when they came mm-hmm. they were merely respecting what india was before You know, like even their compliments were for the old texts and all of that. They they were under no illusions that contemporary India that they saw at the time in the in the late eighteenth century was particularly gifted in any other way. And you know, all they saw was famine and war and blood and things like that. That's interesting because I was just reading about Voltaire, who was you know a, a huge like Indo maniac at that point in time, and he says, and I quote: "I'm convinced that everything has come down to us from the banks of the Ganges: astronomy, astrology, metempsychosis." etc it's very important to note that some 2500 years ago at the least pythagoras went from samos to the ganges to learn geometry but he would certainly not have undertaken such a strange journey had the reputation of indian science not been long established in europe and this was just telling me about i don't know how europeans look at india at that point in time there was this indomania that was there that was strong not just among the the early generation of english but even among the germans mm. they were they were strongly you know pro india in that sense they saw india's i mean some of it was romantic also like the idea that this is this wonderful eastern land that had great ideas back in the day etc etc uh there was a lot of that but for me i mean that's interesting in a way but that's not the main thing that interests me what's more interesting is the polemics that existed within india mm. throughout time you know you have this notion that back in the day you know everyone just sat and they you know chanted their mantras and their shlokas and they were all well behaved people and caste kept society perfectly regimented everyone was content and there was some mm. time when the caste system was pristine all of that but the last 1000 years mm. you know from day one there has always been resistance there have always been polemical voices there have always been people who stood up and asked questions fuller is the one who said does the mm. cosmic creator menstruate through the mouth kabir is the one who said through were you year. born through yeah. the year earlier you go to the 12th century basava says that loaded with the weight of the vedas the brahman is a veritable donkey mm. now he had the the i don't know the courage to say it but also meant that from the start there were mm. people saying things that were polemical that were radical that were not pleasant to hear for custodians of orthodoxy in elite society or whatever mm. there were people who were able to stand up and say that so the i mean yes the west was enamored of you know culture and indian literature and things like that with good reason because there is much to admire in it and one of the travesties is that we we learn more shakespeare than we learn uh, of indian poets and you know the, the murti classical library is finally translating things and there is something good in that there is something good in trying to rediscover our own riches even if it is in a foreign language as it were but what's also equally interesting is that it wasn't merely that indians were sitting and composing fine poetry about sublime thoughts they were also coming up with polemical thought they were also coming up with radical thought and there was there was there were people who were in it for like very sharp debate it wasn't even people gathered in a room and you know in, in some romantic sense they sort of reclining on bolsters and having little exchanges on philosophy no this was 
the actual thing. You yeah, know, the this kind was of on the streets and, and all of that. And Basava, you know, his, his community is uprooted and they have to split mm-hmm. uh, a year before his death because they, do an, they, they organize an inter-caste marriage mm-hmm. between a, a Brahmin's daughter and a Dalit's man. And this happens in the 12th century and the fathers uh, of, the, of the, both the people are killed and lynched and all of mm-hmm. that. And you find the exact same thing happening even today in 2019. Mm-hmm. So it's funny that, you know, so many centuries separate us. Basava is in the 12th century. Here we are in the 21st. But intercaste stuff still, uh, you know, breaks families, causes murder, causes violence, things like that, which tells you that, you know, this, you can't, I mean, caste is the elephant in the room. If you're mm-hmm. studying Indian history, you can't get away from it. Mm-hmm. You can't get away. You can talk all about the glories of great empires and kings, but you really cannot get away from caste. Yeah, I mean, when I was thinking about uh, enduring Indian institutions, right, you have a lot of people, there was that recent thing about, you know, the British were the ones who created the caste system, which I personally completely disagree rubbish. with. Quite rubbish. Um, they, they merely... They merely uh, started cataloging it mm. in a way, and since then, castes have been sort of stuck in those boxes where the British left them. But they, but they were they stuck were in a nominally other way, otherwise as well. They were like, there always. Yeah, yeah. Caste was never. I mean, it's not like they came and invented caste for earlier. Mm. I mean, there there are kings who sometimes upgraded their varna status. Mm. You know, there are kings. Martandorm of Travancore, for example, was technically of Shudra varna, mm. but he was upper caste. You know, he was a man of privilege. He had man of. He was a king. He had armies and all of that. The Brahmins merely said, "You're a Shudra," and then he had to pay them a lot of gold and so on and go through some fabulous rituals, and he was upgraded to Kshatriya. That sort of kingly movement up and down the varna scale is one thing. Mm. The reality of jati is something else. So jatis could sometimes you know acquire economic resources acquire mm-hmm. political power and generally uplift themselves into prosperous situations but they would still remain at their whatever you know whatever the brahmin said was their mm-hmm. original tainted position or whatever mm-hmm. a brahmin would still not eat with them for example you yeah. know the, those things stayed the, I mean, why why are we saying that the british created the caste system and you have all of bhakti literature which is all about this mm-hmm. it is all about talking about the injustice of caste chokhamela about whom i have mm-hmm. an essay in the book you know this is a man who uh, 6 7 centuries ago uh, is talking about the injustice of the fact that he can't enter the temple and look at the deity who, who he's dying to see and even the deity, conveniently, of course, whenever he comes to visit him in miraculous situations, never asks him to enter the temple, breach any rules or anything, because caste was real. So even in his dreams or even in these miracles, caste was never questioned. So there is, it is interesting that, you know, now this argument is made as though this was a new Victorian creation or whatever. The Victorians merely amended it in some way. Yeah. And that happens. I mean, every time caste changes in that sense, but they didn't create it. Absolutely not. That's true. I mean, I think uh, you can ascribe a lot to the British. You can ascribe a lot to colonialism. You can blame uh, their Victorian morality for a lot of things the society is still dealing with today. I think you've spoken excessively all around about uh, blouses in Kerala, for example. But I don't think you can uh, whitewash, I guess, some of the injustices of your own system. No, I think it comes from the ongoing political agenda to sort of unite all these groups and castes under one majoritarian title mm. and create this community that is the majority mm. and, and caste is a handicap in the process so it's very convenient to blame it on the foreigner as well and try and brush it under the carpet saying that Acha, we didn't do it, mm. it was done by these evil people from outside so now let's just forget it and move on and do it so I think it's linked, this whole argument is largely linked to the majoritarian project and you know mm. that agenda rather than being a historical argument. I don't think any historian really can take the notion that caste was created by the British seriously. Yeah, I, I think it's 
they make it into a historical argument simply for legitimacy yeah. right because then you can say oh histories no. in that sense always sadly had to be a handmade into all these political ideologies and that's always going to be the case because all political parties have some ideas and the ideas derive nourishment and legitimacy from history mm-hmm. and it's a selective reading of history sure but history provides the raw material for you may selectively choose and you know pick what you want but mm-hmm. the thing is history is there it's like it's sitting there with a bag of it's like you enter a supermarket mm-hmm. like everything is there now technically you, you should catalog everything in the supermarket to understand what what the contents are but no mm-hmm. you will go to one place where you like what you see pick that pick something else and you've got the ingredients you want to create a dish that you already decided in your head you want to make mm-hmm. it's a little bit like that you formed your ideology then you enter the supermarket of historical ideas pick and choose a few battles a few episodes a few examples and justify it that's what political parties do and it's very difficult to counter that easily for the simple reason that history is amorphous it doesn't have mm-hmm. a fixed shape the more you read the more evidence comes to light you know of different kinds with ancient india for example genetics is playing a big role mm-hmm. in understanding the past mm-hmm. so as time goes history's form changes because more material is being added mm-hmm. a book written now may be a great book but 20 years later it may be outdated completely mm-hmm. the arguments may be completely flawed you know uh, someone i know who on facebook sort of uh, lampooned this one line i had in the acknowledgments of my last book where i said we should i quoted mary beard and said we should never think of ourselves as better historians than those who came before us mm-hmm. because look at it this way you know the victorian era th- there were many historians then but they were all they had this lens of morality mm. through which they saw everything so their history was not fully developed for that reason it mm. was always handicapped by this morality that they were imposing unconsciously in many cases onto that today history is politically charged you know we don't know what right now we can't tell what our blinkers are but 100 years from now someone may turn around and say that we had our own blinkers of some kind so we should never we should always be cautious about saying that we finally have this the mm. best scientific rational method of knowing history mm. we can never say that there's always going to be that 5% subjective bias of any historian mm. because at the end of the day historians also human beings you can all objectivity is an aspiration it is what you should work towards but you can never guarantee no matter what book you write and how well you write it you can never say that this is 100% perfect and this is 100% objective not only with the will more material come to light in the next 50 years better books will be written new methods will come uh, new perspectives will come the whole feminist perspective for example people wouldn't even have dreamed of in the 19th century sure. we forget the feminist uh, forget the morality mm. lens they wouldn't even have known that this was such a thing existed that's come now Now tomorrow there may be an LGBT angle that comes to things. The the possibilities are endless. So all of us, when we do something, we should I think acknowledge firstly that we are all always handicapped by some limitations or the others. That we are always handicapped by our own cultural context in which we are raised, and inadvertently we have our own prejudices and limitations, and these will often uh, reflect in the work we do. But having said that. you know uh, historians should at least genuine historians should try and keep objectivity as the goal as opposed to these other historians who walk into the supermarket with a agenda that's already been decided and a recipe they already have in mind and then decide that this is what we're going to pick that's what we're going to ignore i mean i think it also depends on objectives and a certain level of uh, self awareness with respect to what your biases are at the end of the day if you know that you're from a certain caste if you're of a certain gender then you just easily know where you're coming from and uh, i'm doing an episode later with uh, swarna rajagopal on feminism and what she was saying was that it's about this commitment to be objective you don't have to proclaim yourself objective Correct. as long as you're committed to being open yeah. to it that's uh, yeah. a good way to look and, at and it. and being open to the idea that you know you will make mistakes frankly mm. i mean everybody makes mistakes as i said you know the whole idea is not that we have the answers we we are trying to understand 
the past in its own context. We're trying to understand it. We're not trying to judge it. We're not trying to milk it for present day purposes. We're not trying to decide who was good and who was bad. Mm. That is not the point of a historian. That is what politicians do. That is what they're, uh, in, in some ways, that's what probably what they're meant to do. Politics mm. is all about making value judgments and proclaiming your ideas better than the other. So that, that temptation for politics to sort of milk history to justify itself will always be there. Mm. So what does the historian have to do? Try, try and stay as true to the subject as possible. Try and do as objective a job as possible. And increasingly, I feel in a time like this, one of the reasons history is also perverted so easily, especially by uh, you know people of a certain political leaning, is that it's just sitting there mm. and... So much good history languishes in the academic seminar circuit, doesn't go out and reach the mainstream. So it's just sitting there for these people to pervert because in the mainstream, nobody's seen better. They've never heard of anything better because the best ideas are sitting in an academic circuit. You need to bridge that gap somehow. It's not easy, but that's what narrative uh, nonfiction is trying to do, which you're trying to use engaging language, use accessible language, storytelling and other uh, gifts as well to try and make history come alive because that's the only way you create a constituency for history. For people who are interested in history, a large audience that is interested in good history told well, rather than an audience where you know, other people can pick and choose and say, this is it. All right. Okay. I think that's a good note to end on. But before that, I have one last question for you. Uh, I generally ask this to all my guests. So I say, what is the one book that you would recommend? Now, I will definitely tell my listeners, I'll send them links to all of your books, particularly The Courtesan, The Mahatma and The Italian Brahmin. But what are other books that you would recommend for people who are interested in histories of the subcontinent? You know, I would, I think... Perry Anderson wrote uh, The Indian Ideology, right? So uh, that is a book, it's polemical, there's a lot to disagree with, but it's one of those books that it serves a purpose, which is that, that the polemics, that the sharp argument, the sometimes you know irreverent to an extent where you feel a little rattled, mm. that kind of writing, all of this does one very useful purpose of holding up a mirror and telling us to check all the myths that we've ingrained into our own, uh, into ourselves, through schooling, through, you know, the national, what do you call it, the pledge that we had to say in, in school every day in the morning and things like that. You know, all of that sort of ingrained some ideas in your head. And this is a thing that, that holds all those myths up to question and holds them up to certain scrutiny. And if you want to open your mind, you have to be willing to engage with polemical texts. You don't have to agree with it, you can you know, go out and proactively disagree with it. Mm-hmm. But something like Perry Anderson's Indian ideology, I think, you know, it, it plays a very important role in, in getting you to open your eyes and firstly get the romance out of it and start mm-hmm. looking at things seriously because it's very easy to be seduced by the romance. You'll mm-hmm. be seduced by the narrative. He blocks that seduction. He blocks the romance. It's a little bit of a, you know, it, it's it's not the kind of person you want to have as a friend, mm. but you it is a kind of person you want to have if you want to evolve your mind and mm. think intelligently. So you can disagree with Perry Anderson's uh, arguments, but mm. his his overall writing will, I think, at the end of the day, when you finish that book and you know close the final chapter, uh, it will have opened your eyes in, in in various ways, and I think that is useful as well. All right. Thank you so much, Manu, and best of luck with Thank the Thank you book. for having me. That's it for this episode of States of Anarchy. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to know more about Manu's work, I highly recommend picking up a copy of his new book or go check out his other works, The Rebel Sultans and The Ivory Throne. I've also attached a list of resources if you want to know more about the histories of India in the episode bio. If you have comments or questions, then do reach out to me at the rate States of Anarchy on Instagram or at the rate Hamsani H on Twitter. You can listen to States of Anarchy on the IVM podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you haven't subscribed already, just click on the button and before you know it, we'll be back next week. Hi, I'm Satyajit. Hi, I'm Racheta. We are from the Open Library Project and we host a podcast called Paperback. Paperback is a podcast where we engage with stalwarts and experts from various industries suggesting non-fiction titles that contributed to their journey in a big way. We've had guests like Anjali Rana, Dr. Marcus Rani, Dr. Swati Loda, Ambi Parmeswaran, Apurva Damani and many more on our show Paperback. Find new episodes every Wednesday on IVM Podcast app, website or wherever you listen to podcasts. नमस्ते मैं हूं सौरभ चंद्रा और मैं प्रणय कोटस्थाने जब महफिल खत्म होते होते दरवाजे के बाहर पुलिया के ऊपर हम दुनिया भर की जटिल समस्याओं को सॉल्व करने में लग जाते हैं तो हो जाती है पुलियाबाजी अब आजकल के अपार्टमेंट वालों ने तो कभी पुलिया देखी नहीं होगी पर आप फीलिंग तो समझ ही सकते हैं तो आइए शामिल हो जाइए हमारी पुलियाबाजी में जहाँ प्रणय और मैं एक से एक इंटरेस्टिंग टॉपिक्स की तह तक जाएंगे आर्टिफिशियल इंटेलिजेंस बिटकॉइन पाकिस्तान मेडिकल एजुकेशन करेंसी क्राइसिस कभी हम दोनों के साथ और अक्सर स्पेशल एक्सपर्ट गेस्ट की कंपनी में सुनिए हमें आई वी एम की वेबसाइट ऐप या अपने फेवरेट पॉडकास्टिंग प्लेटफॉर्म आरोप हर दूसरे हफ्ते 